0: Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Glad to have you here. My name's Glenn, serve as one of the pastors here. Warm welcome to you, especially if you are new with us. Uh, One of our normal modes of operation as a church is to preach through books of the Bible. Find ourselves in the book of Genesis, start in chapter one, go till we're done. And so if you brought your Bible or you have a device, go ahead and open up with me to Genesis 12. Genesis chapter 12. One of the questions that I want to ask uh, out of the gate is just so you and I can be on the same page. What is the structure of Genesis? How is it divided? Where have we been thus far in this book? Genesis 1 through 11 is really the story of the human uh, race. It's the story of creation, fall, flood, and dispersion. So if you remember the, the honeymoon phase of Genesis chapter 1 and 2... Uh, God and man dwelling together, perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect peace. Genesis 3 comes, the fall happens. Um, The deceit of the evil one, the choice of Adam and Eve to rebel against God, all the aftermath and corruption of that. And then um, it gets worse from there. Cain murders his brother, and then uh, there's a flood. And for four chapters, we just hear the story of things getting worse and worse. God wipes out the human race, and then everything comes back. There's a Tower of Babel where everyone says, you know what we should do? We should get brick. We should build a city so high that we somehow ascend above God, will be God. Same problem, different day. God strikes them down, uh, confuses their language. They scatter across the world, and here we are. So this is kind of dark. Uh, It's kind of hard to imagine what the different civilizations and people groups looked like, how they operated. Did they have any knowledge of God? Were they worshiping other gods? We can gather a lot, but the big question that we should be asking is, how is God going to solve this? What is God going to do in human history to resolve the problem of sin? And so Genesis chapter 12 through 50 is the beginning of the Hebrew race. The rest of the book of Genesis is God's dealings with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And this morning, we're going to start dealing with the character of Abraham, whose former name, as I will call him this morning, as he is in our text, is Abram. I want to give you a little bit of background of this guy. This is a huge figure in the Bible, okay? Just I want to like put a big banner up right now. It says, pay attention to the name of Abram, soon to be Abraham. Uh, Many of you may be familiar with this name. He's known uh, as the father of the faith. He is so prominent among the Jewish people, among Christians worldwide, among Muslims. Uh, Abraham is inescapable. He may be the most significant person second to Jesus Christ. So it's good that we would pay attention to who he is and his genealogy is he comes from Noah's son, Shem. He's a part of his line. There are 16 chapters in Genesis that are devoted to Abram. Listen to this. His name appears 294 times in 27 books of the Bible. Not a minor character. He's mentioned in 11 New Testament books, all four of the Gospels included. The nation of Israel and Jesus the Messiah will come from Abram's seed. His name means exalted father, and when it's changed later to Abraham, it means father of a multitude. Three times in Scripture, in very significant terms, he is called the friend of God. We get an answer to the problem of the world beginning with Abram and God's call on his life. It's dark. Sin has ruined everything. Once again, the people of God have rebelled. It reminds you of Genesis chapter 1. It's dark, the earth is formless, it's void, then God speaks. So it is in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks. Comes out of nowhere, calls this man, and one of the biggest blessings, just by, by way of introduction this morning, one of the biggest blessings of Genesis chapter 12 is often overlooked, I want us to just think for a moment very, very practically, common sense about this. The fact that God reveals himself in the first place is grace. It's a miracle. All the law, the prophets, the history of God's people, the scriptures, they come from what begins right here in Genesis chapter 12. It's all showing God's character. It's all showing God's personality it's all showing what god is like and it's showing his work to set apart people from beginning to end who would represent him who would have faith and dependence on him who would be different in the world who would trust in him who are reconciled to him who call him friend who call him shepherd who call him teacher god did not have to do this church He didn't ever have to reveal himself to us. Do we recognize this? And yet he does. And he does it for his own glory and his own namesake. If you read throughout scripture, you see that all the peoples of the earth might know him, that all mankind would know him, that all nations would know him. And what would they know about him? They would know that he is powerful, that he is the savior, that he is the redeemer, that salvation belongs to him, that he is the mighty one. That he is holy. This is our God. Author John Walton, he says this, it won't be on the screen, but he says hope, listen to this, hope is a commodity in short supply in a world without revelation. In the ancient world, there were few atheists. Their primitive understanding of the natural world allowed no option such as naturalism to fill the gaps left if deity were eliminated from the picture. Everything was attributed to the favor or anger of the gods. With no revelation, however, there was no way to know what pleased and what angered them. In a well-known Assyrian prayer entitled, A Prayer to Every God, the worshiper seeks to appease a deity from his anger over an offense that the worshiper has committed. But there are two problems, church. Number one, the worshiper doesn't know which god is angry. And number two, he doesn't know anything he's done wrong. He therefore addresses each confession he makes to, quote, the God I know or do not know, the goddess I know or do not know. He's ready to confess, ignorantly eating forbidden food or invading sacred space, anything to appease. His frustration overwhelms us with sympathy as he expresses his hopelessness. Here's his prayer. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. City light. This is what pales people who have no revelation. This is the life that we are yet left to leave, the nightmare of those who live in a world without revelation. And I just want to bring good news to us this morning. Before we even read the word of God, can we just celebrate that we have it? Can we celebrate that we have revelation from God that leaves us not speculating and guessing about who he is, his heart, his plan for the whole globe. Where we're from, where we're going, we have it all. God has been so good to reveal it to us. How sad and honestly how pitiful that we would ever let this become commonplace to us. How heartbreaking that we would ever take the word of God for granted. I want you to think about your story right now, how you ended up here in this seat at this church on this Sunday morning. At some point in your life, God revealed himself to you. Could have used many means to do it. Could have used other people in your life. Could have used his word. Could have used the good news of Jesus that someone spoke to you. But God has seen to it that he has been revealed to you. Your life could have been without that. Our lives could have been without God showing himself to us. Hallelujah. That he's made himself known. And it begs the question, how well do we know God? Church, if we were lost, if we were in darkness, if we were without hope, if we were without truth, if we were without love... Then, this God who has made himself known to us, granted us all truth, all love, all grace, all mercy. Why would we not want to open these pages to know their author? Why would we not want to know the person who so loves us? Why would we not want to grow in friendship with him? Why would we not take advantage of the, the offering that he's given? The hand extended to us that says, come, know me. I know you already. Come, know me. I want to be known by you. So, let's dive into Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, as God speaks and begins to make himself known. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I just want to take inventory of the promises that God makes right here in this moment. Uh, If you look at verse 2, he says that he will make Abram into a great nation. Already there is tension in this story that you may not even know about. And here it is. In the previous chapter, verse 30, we learn something of Abram. He's married to a woman named Sarai, later to be named Sarah. And Sarai is old and barren. She's unable to conceive. Abram's an old dude with no kids. And here is God saying, Abram. I will make you into a great nation. Something miraculous is going to have to happen. He also says, if you pay attention, I'm going to make your name great. This is in direct contrast to the previous chapter where quite literally the people building the Tower of Babel said, let's make a name for ourselves. Church, I want you to know that's not the way the world works. If someone's going to have a name, it's going to be because God has bestowed it on them. It's going to be because God has given it to them. And so here's a humble man, a man filled with faith, and God says, I will make your name great. You won't make it great. I will. He continues and he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Um, He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. I I just want to pause for a second and show you how this actually has bared itself out in history. Not only throughout the Bible do we see that people who come against the nation of Israel, it doesn't go well for them. But in history since then, we learn, pastor and author Don Barnhouse, he helps us understand that historically speaking, this has continued. Church, think about this. When the Greeks overran Palestine and desecrated the altar in the Jewish temple, they were soon conquered by Rome. When Rome killed Paul and many others and destroyed Jerusalem under Titus, Rome soon fell. Spain was reduced to a fifth-rate nation after the Inquisition against the Jews. Poland fell after its Jewish massacre which preceded Hitler's Germany which went down after its binge of anti-Semitism. Britain lost her empire when she broke her faith with Israel. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. Crazy to see how this promise has played out to this very day. Now, the question that remains is how is Abram? going to respond when God comes out of nowhere and drops all of these promises on him. Let's continue in verse four. It's quite simple, so Abram went. (laughs) As the Lord had told him and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Church, this is the story of a guy who moved forward in faith. He built altars, called upon the name of the Lord. Built altars, called upon the name of the Lord, journeyed on, built altars, called upon the name of the Lord. His answer before he met with God every time was Yes. His yes was on the table and there is one thing that Abram is recognized for in Scripture and it is his faith. Uh, the theme of faith is paramount in the Christian life, is it not? The theme of faith is paramount in Scripture and the story of the Bible and the story of the world. God loves faith. And in Hebrews 11, 8-10, we learn by faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In Hebrews, we get this hall of faith. This is a chapter in scripture that goes out of its way. God goes to great lengths to honor particular characters in the Bible who exercised faith what is faith faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen can i say that again faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet Seen in that same chapter, Hebrews 11, we learn it's impossible to please God without the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Christian, your life is one of faith. You and I, we've not seen God, but we know Him to be real. We've not seen the new heavens and the new earth. We've not seen Judgment Day, but we know them to be real. Abram is merely picturing to us a model for depending on God, trusting God, anchoring his life on God's sovereignty. If you actually go back to verse 1, don't skip over it. Verse 1, God's command is to go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. Abram's background is that he is from a place called the Ur of the Chaldeans. This is a place that was not a hill with a tent on it on the side of a mountain where Abram just woke up one day and heard God's voice. This is a place that had some 300,000 people. Abram was in the midst of a place that had economic success, commerce, industry. He was in the midst of a pagan nation, polytheistic, idolatrous. They worshipped the moon. This is the place where he's coming from, and and it's not natural, y'all. It's not normal to leave land, to leave country, to leave family, to leave relatives. That's not normal for someone to do that. There's so much personal and social and financial risk involved with that. But when God speaks, Abram listens. Faith is going, yes, but it also means, faith also means this, it also means leaving something. In your life, you've not only said yes, Christian, in faith to Jesus, but in saying yes to what lies ahead, there are things that you have said, I must leave that behind. There's certain reputation or security or a way of thinking or a way of living or a way of believing or a way of spending or a way of choosing that you've had to leave behind. And you've seen it benefit you. In your life and mine, God is always calling, God is always leading, God is always inviting, God is always prompting. Church, faith is not just here. Do you hear me? Faith is not just agreeing to something intellectually. Faith is doing. Faith is obeying. Faith is going. You remember the old song, trust and obey? There's no better way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It is impossible to please God without faith. And here's the good news. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is looking back to this part of the story. In Galatians 3, New Testament, here's what he says. He says, In the same way Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the Scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, right in his sight because of what? Their faith. Listen to this next verse. God proclaimed this good news, this gospel, to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ, who came as the seed from Abram, share the same blessing Abram received because of his faith. Sing it with me. Father Abram... I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Some of you are like, That's, I didn't want to go to that church today. Um, now lest we view Abram as something more than he is let me ruin your opinion of him by continuing the story okay (laughs) he's a man of great faith recognized for such but we just get into a bizarre episode here there's no getting around it it starts in verse 10 here's kind of the inciting incident now there was a famine in the land so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land now listen this is a legit issue Famines are serious, but he is leaving and putting the promised land at risk and vulnerable. He's leaving the place he's supposed to be to go down to Egypt. It's very hard for him in this moment, I'm sure, to trust God's promise. So he departs from it. In the, means, in the meantime, he's displacing his family. And then, that's not all. Continue with me in verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. I want to stop right there. This is the story under Abram's control, under Abram's trust, under Abram's decision making. It's actually been said that this is the I, me, my, me, mys of Abram. Okay, Think about what I just said, if you go back and look at the verses I just read, how does Abram propose everything that he's saying? I, me, my, me, my. It's all about him. No trust in God. Now, it's good practice here to remember that we carry 21st century lenses of interpretation with us when we read our Bibles. We have to be aware of that. It's certainly Sarai's physical beauty it's what it says after all right no doubt but it could also be her sense of dignity her poise her countenance her wisdom all could have contributed to Abram's observation because this was a culture that looked to cement power and political influence not through just lustful desire but through marriage regardless let's make no bones about it this is Abram treating his bride as transactional this is not good Everything is about him. In fact, famine, you probably never thought about this, famine doesn't last for a short time. Like we read this and think this was like kind of a one-night, two-night thing that happened. Scholars say this could have been like a decade. We don't know. It could have been a long time that Abram was there trying to have good favor with Pharaoh and sending his wife to be treated as his sister. A lot of theories are made here about Abram's decision. Uh, Theories that either vindicate him give all sorts of defense to his character in order to maintain his reputation or accusations, floodgates about him exposing the the patriarch of our faith as an abusive criminal church. I don't want you to miss this. In fact, keep this in mind always when you're reading your Old Testament. The main character here is not Abram. The main character here is not Abram. We're not meant to read this chapter and to grab things that we should or shouldn't do, moral principles that we should live by from Abram and his decisions in Egypt. He's not our role model for good or bad. We don't want to principalize Abram. The text doesn't give us anything from God that condemns him or celebrates him. Now the main character is about to show up. The main character has been silent in this whole section and now he's going to redeem what happened. The main character is God and I want to show you right now what happens when God is in control. I want you to pick it up with me in verse 17. Huge words right here. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go and pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had can we all agree that it's going to take a lot of growth for abram to make it through this 16 chapters this is the very first thing that happens when stuff is not perfect He needs to grow in wisdom, and he indeed does as the story goes on, but church, don't miss this. Here's the good news. God chooses, God elects, God purposes, God sets his love on flawed and ordinary people. I want you to think about your life right now. How worthy you should be that the God of the universe would set his love and his affection, and his grace, and his mercy on you. How worthy you are to receive all forgiveness, all pardon, power from on high, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You want to know what qualifies you to be a Christian? Great news, you're ordinary. You're weak. You're flawed. Christian, I want you to Understand that Jesus loves you now. He loved you then. He does not love some future version of you. He loves you. He sets his delight on you on your worst days, in your worst moments, after your worst decisions. Do you feel like a failure today coming in here? Is there anywhere in your life where you feel tired and exhausted? Not living up to the expectations that you have for yourself. Let alone the expectations that the God of the universe would have for our holiness. Do you come in here today and you feel like, yeah, I'm deeply flawed. Is there guilt? Is there shame? Is there pain? When you look in the mirror... And you grieve all the time that you are not who you thought you would be at this point in your life. You're not doing the things you thought you would do. You're not pursuing the things you thought you would pursue. You're still stuck in the same habit and routine that you've always been in. You have unmet expectations, unfulfilled dreams, whatever it might be. My friend, Jesus loves you. Jesus sets his love on you. His grace is for you God does not love a future version of us, church. God does not love a more holy version of us. God loves us. We can talk all day about what that kind of love produces in our life, but at the point of the cross, at the foot of the cross, at this side of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, we herald to everyone in our community, everyone in our workplace, to our family, to our neighbors, Christ dies for sinners. Evangelism is not us saying, hey, I've arrived. Let me show you how to get there. Evangelism is one beggar going to another beggar and saying, I found the scraps. I found the food. I found my portion. I found what we need. I found hope. Church, Jesus loves us. Now, he uses ordinary, flawed people. In 1 Corinthians, you got to hear this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's writing and he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Feel foolish? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, when Jesus, in Luke chapter 13, Is giving a picture of his kingdom. He says in verse 18, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. If you're a person in here this morning, you feel like your faith is weak. You're not a towering person of faith. Your track record thus far hasn't been someone who's filled with faith. But it's there. Small is the greatest component in the kingdom of God. Small, weak, lacking the pedigree, lacking the background, lacking the right story, lacking lacking the the giftedness. Lacking. Lacking. Being weak is the means through which Jesus grows his kingdom. Did you know this? Through the faith of the mustard seed. If we continue to the next words in that parable, here's what Jesus said. The birds of the air made nests in its branches. Do we know what that means? It means that when one person among us, weak, by nature sinful flawed ordinary exercises the faith of a mustard seed time and time again that seed will grow and it will not just benefit that person just like God's blessing on Abram's life did not just benefit him it was meant to go through him to become a conduit and a catalyst for blessing and provision for the whole world we today as the kingdom of God grows through small faith things that feel insignificant, ordinary, everyday means of faith in our life. Become a place, a people, that bring provision and blessing to others around us. When you have a healthy marriage, it blesses generations of children in your life. When you have a marriage that is constantly struggling, constantly embattled, constantly giving in to sin, constantly selfish, constantly conflicted, That's not a blessing to our neighbors. It consumes all of our time trying to figure that out and does not allow us the freedom to live as a blessing to other people. And that's one example. God so desires to bring blessing, healing, hope to every area of our life, not just for us, but for everyone else in our life as well. Blessing is meant to go through us to someone else. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. If we continue in verse 13, I wanna summarize this for you. Abram is gonna end up walking away from Egypt with a lot of wealth. His nephew Lot uh, acquires a lot of that wealth. It was on top of the wealth that they already have And uh, they have a lot of people, a lot of cattle, a lot of possessions. And so what happens is this major problem that ends up being a huge problem as we'll continue next week and going forward. They have to split. Abram says, Lot, why don't you just take the area of land that you see, that you want, go settle there with all of your cattle, all of your possessions, all of your people. I'll go over here. And indeed, that happens. And so when that happens... Genesis 13:14 through 18 comes. I want to read this for you. This is God signaling I need to wrap this up. <laughs> Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring. Remember, he doesn't have any kids, church, as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the land and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. I want to close with this this morning. The biggest takeaway from these chapters of scripture have to be who God is and what he promises. Over and over and over again, despite Abram, despite his decisions, despite the hiccups, did you know God is writing a story in our world, church? Over and over again, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will. I will. You know what Jesus says when he's talking about the faith of the church? He says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The story of City Light Bennington, the story of your life and mine, is the story of a redeemed people who have a God who who says, I will. That's our life. That's our testimony. God said he would. God is and God will. And time and time again, we will be tempted to doubt. Time and time again, we will be tempted to to not trust God's promise in our life, but he says, I will. And so I wanna pray right now a prayer over our church. I wanna pray that if you've not heard it yet this morning, you would hear God's voice and you would think about the promises that he's made through his son, Jesus. I'm gonna pray those over us right now. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you say, I will give you forgiveness. Thank you that you say by faith, I will pardon you. I will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I will make you my son or daughter. I will free you from sin's penalty and power. I will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. I will hold you and keep you, that you will never be snatched from my hand. I will always be with you. I will. God, would the declaration of our life be that you are a God who will? Would you mark us by faith, trusting in your word and your promises? Thank you, Jesus, that in you, you have. Thank you, Jesus, that beginning back in chapter 12 of Genesis, a picture began to be painted of one who would come, who would be faithful, who would live the life that we could never live, who would die the death that we deserve as our substitute, who would rise again to new life and give us resurrection power, who would make us a new creation, God, you will, you have, you will come again. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.